uh, how good is it to uh, be able to come to church together and fellowship and um, to pray together like we've just done. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 21. Uh, just to give you a little bit of context here, um, especially if you're visiting with us for the first time, although maybe you need this context too if you've been with us. Sometimes in the book of Job, it can feel like when you go to one of those big shopping centres, even like the Argyle Street parking. I often go there when I have to visit somebody in hospital. I was visiting someone in hospital this week. And you know, it's that dreaded feeling when just before you go down the stairs or into the lift, you go, wait a minute, what level was I on? Oh, that's right, it's the orange level. <laughs> you know, because there's so many cars and they all look alike and every single level looks the same, right? But they're all different. I think that's a lot like the book of Job. Uh, you sometimes need to orientate yourself as to where you are in the book. Now, can I say, in many ways, we're at the deepest, darkest place in the book of Job, but we're on the way up, and there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so there is hope, right? You, you won't just get lost in this spiral of darkness. All right, Job chapter 21, and Job is responding to his friend, Zophar. Then Job replied, Listen carefully to my words. Let this be the consolation you give me. Bear with me while I speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. Is my complaint directed to man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Clap your hand over your mouth. When I think about this, I am terrified. Trembling seizes my body. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not upon them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows carve and do not miscarry. They send their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of tambourine and harp. They make merry to the sound of the flute. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. They say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways? Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? What would we gain by praying to Him? But their prosperity is not in their own hands. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. Yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them? The fate God allots in his anger. How often are they like straw before the wind, like chaff swept away by a gale? It is said, God stores up a man's punishment for his sons. Let him repay the man himself so that he will know it. Let his own eyes see his destruction. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about the family he leaves behind 
when his allotted months come to an end. Can anyone teach knowledge to God since he judges even the highest? One man dies in full vigour, completely secure and at ease, his body well nourished, his bones rich with marrow. Another man dies in bitterness of soul, never having enjoyed anything good. Side by side, they lie in the dust and worms cover them both. I know full well what you are thinking, the schemes by which you would wrong me. You say, where now is the great man's house, the tents where wicked men lived? Have you never questioned those who travel? Have you paid no regard to their accounts, that the evil man is spared from the day of calamity, that he is delivered from the day of wrath? Who denounces his conduct to his face? Who repays him for what he has done? He is carried to the grave, and watch is kept over his tomb. The soil in the valley is sweet to him. All men follow after him, and a countless throng goes before him. So how can you console me with your nonsense? Nothing is left of your answers but falsehood. Let's pray. Father, what a great joy and delight it is to worship you this day. To hear your voice speaking to us through your word. To come together with brothers and sisters in Christ in prayer. To sing your praises. To sense your spirit at work, encouraging our hearts, strengthening our faith. Lord, as we rest from our labours this day, we don't just rest from our work, but we rest from even trying to achieve our own salvation because that is what you have done in Christ. How good it is, Lord, to sit quietly at your feet, to still our minds so that we might meditate on your word. May your Holy Spirit Speak to us this morning, Lord, that we would know you better. That we would know the hope to which you have called us and that we would know that incomparably great power of your spirit that is at work in us who believe. That same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead is now at work transfiguring our hearts and minds to know your will. So, Lord, we commit this time into your hands and we ask for your blessing. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this memorable scene in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress where the main character, whose name is called Christian, tries to make his way through the plough of despond. Christian is weighed down with the conviction of his own sin and he seeks or sinks deeper and deeper into a feeling of despondency. He's graciously rescued though by a character named a good Samaritan. 
who puts his feet on dry ground. It's a beautiful and powerful analogy of how Christ saves us from our sin, lifting us out of the mire and the muck that we ourselves get ourselves in and putting our feet upon the rock. Because on our own, we are utterly hopeless to be able to save ourselves. And we just can't do it. As we come to this particular section of the book of Job, though, I think we can start to feel the same way as Christian did. We can become despondent and even start to despair. Because it's all so dark and gloomy and negative. I want to encourage us all, though, not to give up. Because there are important theological truths here which we really need to take to heart. And while there might not be much this morning that is in the way of being new or that you possibly even haven't heard of in some form before, the Lord knows that you and I need to hear these truths again. Because one of the most insidious pressures that we face, friends, is this. And I think what I'm about to say next will surprise you. It's envy. Envy that unbelievers have a better life than you do. Envy that you'd be better off not following the Lord Jesus and returning to your former way of life even though it was that former way of life that had you enslaved. Do you remember how the Israelites complained about their journey in the desert when they ran out of food and water? If only, they said, we could go back to Egypt. There we had cucumbers, we had melons, we had onions, we had garlic. But now, they said, we've lost our appetite. We never see anything anymore but this manna. It's incredibly ungrateful because they were being supernaturally sustained by God. Manna literally fell from heaven six days a week for 40 years. And not only that, they drank water from a rock. But despite these two miracles, not to mention the miraculous way they had been delivered out of Egypt to begin with, they wanted to go back to being slaves. There's this great song, all of this will show my age, uh, by Keith Green. And it's called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt? Uh, in typical uh, Keith Green style, it's a mixture of tremendous personal challenge, uh, humour and musical flourish. In the opening verse, he says this, So you want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure? Are you sorry that you bought a one-way ticket when you thought you were sure? You wanted to live in the land of promise, but now it's getting so hard. Are you sorry you're out here in the desert instead of your own backyard? This is the temptation I think we face as believers at some point. It's a temptation that Job faced. It's a temptation I think even Jesus himself faced. When at that one point in his ministry, most of the disciples desert him. So much so that he can even say to the twelve, do you want to leave too? 
And while their reply is a wonderful testimony of faith, in some ways it's not entirely reassuring because they say, well, where else do we go? (laughs) But they know that he has the words of eternal life. They know that he's the Holy One of God. And as such, they know that they need to keep following him. In his divine wisdom, though, the Lord provides this extended revelation in the book of Job to help us to persevere through hard times. Times when we feel like our situation or our circumstances perhaps are unjust. When it is, if we're really honest with ourselves, we question whether or not the Lord really loves us at all. Chapter 20 contains Zophar's second and, thankfully, last speech. After chapter 20, uh, we'll never hear from Zophar again. But before he shuts up, though, he makes one last-ditch effort to persuade Job of what we've been seeing as he and his three friends have in common of what you might call transactional theology. It can be summed up by the phrase, sinners never prosper. That's what Zophar thinks. Sinners never prosper. It's as simplistic as it is incorrect, as we'll see in just a moment. But the reason we need to listen to Zophar's speech once again is because I think this is the way we're tempted to think. Because by nature, we all hold to a transactional view that God owes us something. Or maybe he doesn't. We don't need anything from him at all, depending on the case and where your circumstances lie. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say something like, I used to believe in God, but then such and such happened. My loved one got sick. There was a terrible accident. I prayed earnestly for a spouse and it didn't happen. Someone said or did something hurtful to me. Or I was given myself this painful disease. But because of one or maybe even a combination of those things, they no longer believe. Or at least they've stopped going to church. Their lack of faith when trial comes, though, proves that they only worshipped God for what they could receive. Satan was right, at least about them. Take away the gifts and they will immediately despise the giver. Because that's the thinking which a purely transactional view of God is based. And you see how common it is now? You only believe to receive rather than worshipping the Lord for who he really is. Zophar presents that kind of thinking differently, and he says that sinners never experience any of the numerous good things in life. Therefore, Job, you should repent, and you'll get the good things in life. The good things in life, according to Zophar, are reserved for those who trust God alone. But if you think back to what happened in chapters 1 and 2... 
That's actually exactly the same logic that Satan used. And if left to ourselves, it's the way that each and every one of us would think. Because it's the underlying rationale or belief system of every single religion in the world, including some forms of Christianity. Good goes in, blessing comes out. Religious performance is performed like some kind of spiritual poker machine. Divine assistance and favour is granted. Do you see how without the benefit of spiritual revelation, this is how we would all think and relate to God. Prayer wheel is spun, answers to prayer more likely to come. Now, as we saw a few weeks ago, each one of Job's friends bases what they say on a different kind of authority. They each think the same thing, but they all come from a different angle or a different perspective to prove it. For Eliphaz, it was experience. He experienced mysterious, supernatural visions and dreams. Spirits or ghosts come to him in the night with a special word from God. For Bildad, it was tradition. Truth which was decided by democracy or the majority opinion, what most people said on social media. For Zophar, though, it was his own intellect or reason. It's what he himself had analysed and in particular what he himself had understood. By the way, we also saw that for Job, without the benefit of divine revelation, even Job starts to get unstuck because for him, the ultimate authority becomes his own conscience. And while this was pretty accurate most of the time, not even that was infallible. And as a result, even Job started to misunderstand his own situation. What we as the reader have though, which none of the other people in the book, including Job, ever had or would receive, is a word from God. Only you and I know what happened in chapter 1 and 2. No one else knew. And this is why, can I say, the teaching of Scripture is so important. Because the Word of God enables you to understand and to see the world aright. Everything else would be fuzzy unless you could put on the lens of Scripture. It's like putting on glasses when your eyes are weak. The Scriptures alone give us insight and understanding and knowledge. Zophar, though, trusts in himself, and in particular, his own mental abilities. If you still have your Bibles open, turn with me to chapter 20 and have a look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. He says, My troubled thoughts prompt me to answer because I am greatly disturbed. I hear a rebuke that dishonors me. My understanding inspires me to reply. It's not only extremely proud, But it's a timely warning of what the Holy Spirit says in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. It's a complete opposite, you see. Zophar though, well, his response to Job is all about what he himself thinks and most importantly what he himself understands. Zophar's argument can be divided into three distinct points. And I'll move through through these pretty quickly. 
The first is that sinners will never be remembered in verses 1 to 11. Actually, in verse 7, he even goes so far as to say that the memory of the sinner, that is a person who is suffering like Job, the memory of a sinner is as significant as a person's own dung or excrement. Their legacy is no more substantial than a fleeting dream one might have in the middle of the night. Verse 8, like a dream, he flies away, no more to be found, banished like a vision of the night. Ever had a scary dream recently or a good dream? Can you remember it? Not really, except the lingering feeling of what it created in you. That's what Zophar says people like Job are like. It's vivid when you're having it. Or when you're alive, you might even be, um, vaguely remember the dream in the morning, but then it quickly fades. Zophar's second point is that the sinner, that is the person like Job who is suffering, never gets to enjoy their ill-gotten gain. Verses 12-13, Zophar talks about this kind of person savouring evil that they've committed and hiding it under their tongue like we might do with a piece of chocolate. We roll it around in our mouth so as to more fully enjoy the pleasure of its sweetness or saltiness, depending on your predilection. But Zophar says that suffering sinners like Job, though, as much as they enjoy their sin now, they'll spew it back up. Verse 14, yet his food will turn sour in his stomach. It will become the venom of serpents within him. He will spit out the riches he swallowed. God will make his stomach vomit them up. But is that always what happens with ill-gotten gain? It's not, is it? Because more often than not, people do enjoy the delicacies of what they've wrongfully received. They rip you off in business. They live high off the hog, dining in all the best restaurants in Sandy Bay. And they get away with it. People come into your shop and steal. And they enjoy the benefit of that ill-gotten gain for years and years and years. As we'll see even more fully from Job's response in just a moment, what so far is saying here is not right. A transactional view of God is not how his universe works. It's pagan. Karma is pagan, not Christian. Because the reality of the situation, friends, and this is so important, God gives us all this revelation to prove it, the reality of God's world is much more complicated. Which also means that Eastern ideas like karma, are completely unbiblical and false. The third element, though, well, more of that in just a moment. The third element, though, is that the suffering sinner is always going to be judged by God in this life. This is what Zophar goes on to argue, starting at verse 22. In the midst of his plenty, distress will overtake him. The full force of misery will come upon him. When he has filled his belly, God will vent his burning anger against him and rain down blows upon him. 
Though he flees from an iron weapon, a bronze-tipped arrow pierces his liver. Terrors will come over him. Total darkness lies in wait for his treasures. Now, let me just stop and ask you all a serious question here. Is this always what happens to the unbeliever or sinner? Are they always in this life held accountable and do they always experience God's justice and his wrath in the here and now? Well, as we see so clearly in what Job says next and particularly in places like Psalm 73, the answer is no. Scripture says they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, They are free from the burden common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Later on, the psalmist uh, Asaph goes on to say, Psalm 73, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. And even though he can begin the psalm by affirming that surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, that's the opening line, Asaph immediately goes on to confess, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Why? For I envied the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What Asaph writes here, does it resonate with you? That at times your faith in God has been shaken because you looked across at someone else and you thought, why don't I just do the same? Whether it involved an unfair settlement around an inheritance, which was grossly unfair, or a business partner which lied and cheated and stole. There are many times in life when people get away with all kinds of wrongdoing. And friends, they get away with it. For now. And when this happens, it can be so painful that it can result in you literally getting physically sick with stress. And it can even make you feel like giving up on God himself. Of becoming angry and bitter towards him. Why? Think about this. If you're really honest with yourself, why? Because you deserve so much more. Now, do you see again how transactional theology comes creeping in and how we think about life and what happens? I was faithful, God. I don't deserve this. This is why God has so graciously and generously inspired so much of this to be written. Because this is the way we think. It's the way everybody on earth thinks without the word of God. You see, not only do we need to hear it, friends, but we need to be reminded not to think this way over and over and over again. It's not enough to hear it once. God knows you need to hear it multiple times because it's the way you will always think. That said, the answer which Job himself provides in response to what Zophar says, though, is, I think, quite brilliant. And while what Job says is easy to understand, 
it's really important for us as the reader to slow down and to really ponder what he says. And the fact that he says it in this literary form of poetry, I think is really helpful. Obviously, God did too. He inspired it. Because it helps us to enter into the personal feelings of Job's perspective and realize that it's not just about, you know, some abstract philosophical musings or ponderings here. This is real life. This is what it means to be human. It's painful. It's hard. You know the person that said, oh, I don't need to be a Christian. I don't need faith as a crutch. Clearly never understood biblical Christianity or has even the slightest idea what it means. Being a Christian is hard. Trusting in God is hard. It's difficult. I need crutches to follow Jesus. It's not a crutch. You see, Job responds to Zophar's mocking with some mocking of his own. He says in verses 2 to 3, Listen carefully to my words. Let this be a consolation you give me. (laughs) Bear with me while I speak. And after I've spoken, mock on. (laughs) Sometimes you have to answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes. Other times, Proverbs says, that you shouldn't because you'll only become like them yourself. But there is a time to call out what people are doing and it's not ungodly but completely legitimate. That said, just like Zophar, Job's argument also has three, three main points. The first is contained in verses 1 to 16. And it's that clearly sinners do prosper. And so what Zophar is saying is not right. Verse 7, the wicked live on growing old and growing in power. Verse 8, unlike what happened to Job... They see their children established around them. Verse 9, their homes are safe and they don't fall down like Job's tragically did, killing everyone inside. Verse 10, their livestock are healthy and strong and not destroyed or stolen like Job's had been back in chapter 1. And then verse 13, they spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. This is all in contrast to Job, who in the very first verse of the book, we're told, was blameless and upright. And yet here he is, suffering from terrible sickness and pain. He's sitting in the ashes, scraping his sores with a piece of broken pottery, and he's so disfigured that when his friends come to comfort him originally... They don't even recognize him. You could say his form was marred beyond human likeness. By the way, in the Bible, if a person was sick with an infectious disease, even what they touched had to be broken or destroyed. Remember that? And so here is Job trying to get some relief from his pain by a broken piece of pottery, which meant that even the thing that was trying to heal him or give him some release, relief is itself unclean. It's not like he even has clean bandages. Sterile medicine. He is the abject picture of horror. And he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing to deserve it. It's an absolutely terrible and seemingly hopeless situation.
Not so the wicked, though, Job says. Not only do they go down to the grave in peace, passing away quietly in their street, or their sleep, but Job says in verse 14, they even tell God to leave them alone. They tell him, we have no desire to know your ways. It's like the new atheists, you know. Somebody summarized the, the teaching of the new atheists like Hitchens and Dawkins and that. There is no God and we hate him. They scoff at the thought of his existence and at the same time saying, why would we pray to you? Well, if he doesn't exist, what do you even ask that question for? If transactional theology is correct, though, how can something like this go unchecked? I'm thinking at this time, it's like God hits the smoke button. Boom. Surely God would immediately step in and judge such a person. But as we all know, he doesn't. Not always. And people get away with saying and doing the most atrocious acts of blasphemy and pride. I still find it incredible. In just a couple of weeks, we have upside-down crosses all throughout the community. Such is the tolerance of some people. Christianity, Christians seem to a fair game to be offended. I often think to myself, they should get really edgy and do that with another religion like Islam. I wonder how long Dark Mofo would go on then for. But this kind of thinking can tempt us to lose hope in God and undermine our trust in his justice because shouldn't he always act? That's what we really think in our hearts. By the end of the Old Testament, that's exactly what the Israelites had started to think. Malachi chapter 2, we read, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? You see, they'd started to give up on God because he wasn't following their transactional understanding of the world and how it should operate. The wicked were prospering and the Lord was doing nothing about it. And so they said to themselves, God must be pleased with the wicked. They're getting away with it. Or maybe he's not pleased. Maybe he's just couldn't be bothered doing anything about it. Where is he? He's the absentee landlord. God's word itself, though, reveals a completely different way of understanding how the world operates. Now, can I say to you, friends, this is amazing because this gives you such a bigger, more robust view of reality than any kind of simplistic religious exploration ever could. Even though Job acknowledges that this is the case, at the same time, he rightly acknowledges and recognises that their prosperity is also ultimately not in their own hands. That much like the rich fool in Jesus' parable, there comes a day when God suddenly says to people, you fool, this very night your soul will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? 
You see, God doesn't always intervene every single time like a religious transactional view of karma thinks, but he does intervene. All of which leads us on to the second point, and that is sometimes this is what God does. This is a bit surprising development because it's an acknowledgement that not everything Zophar says is false. It's just that it's not all true all the time. Life is more nuanced than Zophar could, could help know or understand. As Job says in verses 17 and 18, Yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them? The fate God allots in his anger. How often are they like straw before the wind, like chaff swept away by a gale? You see, Zophar presents a picture of life which is completely transactional. The righteous are always rewarded and the wicked are always punished. But Job rightly responds by clarifying that our circumstances, our circumstances are not necessarily a sign of God's favour or grace. At least not infallibly so. You see, he says down in verses 23 to 26, One man dies in full vigour, completely secure and at ease, his body well nourished, his bones rich with marrow. Another man dies in bitterness of soul, never having enjoyed anything good. Side by side they lie in the dust and worms cover them both. From a human point of view, life and death is completely random. The righteous and the wicked both lie in the grave and the same fate awaits them both. It's not like the bodies of believers are preserved in the ground and are not eaten by worms. They are. And just because a person lives a life which is honouring to God doesn't mean that some of them don't die in their 30s. Some of the godliest people I've ever known have gone to be with the Lord in their prime. Circumstances are not an infallible indication, friends, of God's favour or grace. Just like Lazarus and the rich man, a person may live a life of ease and luxury only to spend eternity enduring the fires of God's wrath. Christ himself endured a lifetime of rejection only to suffer an agonising, lonely death. Had he sinned? May it never be. So don't look to your circumstances to judge the condition of your relationship with God. But look to Christ and his atoning death on the cross. That's where forgiveness is to be found. That's where love and assurance is to be found. And flowing on from that, look at your own life and discern, are you actually walking in obedience to Jesus' commands? Because that's where our spiritual assurance is found. It's at the cross and flowing out of the cross into our lives of obedience. And I think sometimes God takes away some of those material blessings to prove whether our obedience is genuine or whether we're just worshipping him for the things that he's given us. Now this brings us to the third and final point. And that is, Job says, most of the time unbelievers in this life are left alone. Have a look with me again at what Job says in verses 29 to 34. Have you never questioned those who travel? 
Have you paid no regard to their accounts that the evil man is spared from the day of calamity, that he is delivered from the day of wrath? Who denounces his conduct to his face? Who repays him for what he has done? He is carried to the grave and watch is kept over his tomb. The soil in the valley is sweet to him. All men follow after him and a countless throng goes before him. So how can you console me with your nonsense? Nothing is left of your answers but falsehood. What a strong word. That view, that understanding of God relating to his world in a purely transactional way is nonsense. Job's words might seem harsh, but he's rightly exasperated by the complete and utter foolishness of their counsel. For it's a false hope that they are offering him. It's just not how the world works. Now, these speeches are difficult to listen to, aren't they? And because they're expressed as poetry, their content is intensified all the more for us emotionally. Well, what possible purpose then could God have for inspiring so much of his word here to be written? Well, as I said at the beginning, we all struggle with the sin of envy especially when unbelievers are enjoying the very things we wish ourselves we had. Whether it be a marriage partner, a child, or maybe even a more successful business or ministry, we're tempted to compromise our faith in all kinds of ways because we're envious of what other people have. You know, the biggest complaint the Pharisees or biggest motivation they had against Jesus? Envy. They were envious of the amount of people following him. But there's another um, interrelated purpose to all of this as well, and it's that the Christian life is hard. You only have to read through the Psalms to see how, how often they're filled with cries for deliverance, especially the Psalms of David. More often than not, the Psalms are written in the back of a cave as David is on the run from his enemies some of whom are his own family members, than they are from an ivory tower from a palace. Hardship and suffering are part and parcel of the authentic Christian life. That's why it's so good that we sing the older hymns, because they recognize it. Most of the newer music we sing doesn't. We live in a day of prosperity and of peace and of well-being. That's why I think the prosperity gospel gets such a... Free reign. You know that satanic teaching that says the more you give, the more you get? The more you worship God, the more he'll give you good things? As we heard a little bit earlier in our reading from Job, John 6, there were times when the Lord Jesus Christ himself had everyone desert him. Isn't that incredible? Jesus perfect in life, perfect in doctrine. And some of the things he says are so hard to hear that people go, yeah, it's too much. Like the Israelites did in the desert, his own disciples started to grumble and think, you know what, it'd be better if we went back to Egypt. This is hard. The confession of faith from the disciples, though, should be our example and with these words, I'd like to conclude. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. We believe and know you are the Holy One of God. Friends, you don't know, like we sang before, whether good or evil comes to us today. But there's one thing that God is asking us to do. And it's saying that we sang before. Can you say, blessed be the name of the Lord? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Can you say that? Let's pray. Lord, we worship you and we thank you. Some of us are in need, some of us are in want, some of us are in plenty, some of us are in rest, and that's beautiful and great and good. But Lord, above all those things, you are gracious and holy and righteous and good. And we worship you, whether it's in the midst of the ashes or in the midst of a feast. We praise your name, for you are good, and you are good all the time. Lord, thank you that you've spoken to us through your word this morning. Thank you that it's challenged us to think differently to how we would naturally think. We praise you, Lord, for your revelation, and we pray that you would pour out your grace upon us this, this week and in the coming weeks and months. Lord, may we be true comforters to one another, pointing each other to Christ and spurring us on to trust him, to worship him, no matter what our circumstances are. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.